Okay, and we're recording. There we go. I've I've sent Alan out, and our dog is like our dog is high energy. But by about one p.m. yesterday, he was sick of being walked. Because every time one of us has a call, the other one's like, oh, yes, I'll just take the dog out, give you some peace and quiet. And so, like, Hercules is having walks about 40 minutes apart now. Which is, is I feel like it's the kind of thing that he would have thought was great yeah. two days ago. And now he's like, no, no, let's just let's just stay home. It's very much the dog equivalent of be careful what you wish for. Hello and welcome to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's daily podcast on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer here at Foreign Policy. And I'm James Palmer, a senior editor at FP. Today we're going to look at some of the conspiracy theories and misinformation about the coronavirus, which has spread around the world at the same speed as the virus itself. Later on, we'll be joined by Graham Brookie, the director and managing editor of the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab. His team of Digital Sherlock study disinformation from around the world. The world is changing in ways that affect your life and your business. Do you have the intelligence you need? Now, FP is offering Insider. With a new FP Insider subscription, you will get all of FP's content plus exclusive access to data-driven intelligence, power maps that distill complex issues, in-depth special reports, and conference calls on the biggest stories and trends. Get global insight you can bank on. Subscribe to FP Insider today at foreignpolicy.com slash FP Insider. James, I've written about disinformation for years now. And when I started at Foreign Policy, I remember telling our editor, Dan, that when I lived in Russia, I felt like my beat was covering lies. And it feels like the Russians have definitely not missed a beat in sticking the knife in over the coronavirus, right? I mean, why let a good crisis go to waste? You can almost be guaranteed that any major global event, you know, tune into Russian state TV and in particular the discussion shows. And it's just bonkers. And of course, they're not necessarily having their scripts written and sent over by the Kremlin word for word. But by now, they have a really good sense of their marching orders. You know, any opportunity to sow chaos um, and confusion and disparage Europe or America is, you know, considered fair game. And since the outbreak of the coronavirus, both online and on air, Russian state outlets have come up with some really outlandish claims. But a common thread throughout many of them has been this suggestion that the coronavirus may be some kind of sneaky U.S. bioweapon, which, in case anybody needed that pointed out, there's no evidence of. I mean, it, it, it does seem like unless the U.S. is really determined to kill off its own elderly, this was a, a, a somewhat mistaken idea. In the same way as the idea that the Chinese had somehow released this as a bioweapon to you know, shut down their economy for two months was always a little bit crazy. Yeah, but we've had emails into the show actually asking whether or not coronavirus was a Chinese bioweapon. So that idea is getting out there. Well, and I think it's one of these things where there may be a very small nugget of truth buried underneath all that. Not that it was a bioweapon, but, you know, there's a real possibility that it was a biosafety leak of a, a kind that is fairly routine worldwide by researchers who were working in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which does exist and did work with bats and so on. Hmm. And, you know, it's easy to imagine a scenario in which somebody just doesn't wash their hands 
Um, you know, these kind of biosafety accidents are pretty common uh, worldwide. The U.S. had has had dozens or hundreds of them in the past, though not with these kind of consequences. But the truth is, we just never really know how the virus started because the Chinese are never going to allow the kind of openness mm. that would let us really track it. And the chance, of course, that it just leapt by chance from species to species um, entirely outside of any lab context is very high. But there's absolutely no evidence that there was any attempt to deliberately engineer or create it. And in fact, there's just been a, a science paper published that uh, shows natural origin and no, no sign of any kind of manipulation or genetic engineering. Yeah. I mean, so far, what have the Chinese state media and the Chinese authorities been saying about the coronavirus? Well, in the initial part of the outbreak, they were very mild, quite moderate. Mm -hmm. But one of the things we've seen over the last few weeks has been this switch towards pushing anti-American conspiracy theories of the same type as Russian media has been using. Most notably, that's come through Zhao Lijian, the spokesman or one of the spokespeople of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and has always been a very trollish presence on Twitter. And he's been posting articles from Western conspiracy sites claiming that the US military started the virus and so on. But even beyond that, Chinese ambassadors and Chinese state media have started to kind of wink wink at the conspiracy theories which began online back in January in kind of the fringes of the internet. And they've been posting things on, you know, there's no evidence that the virus originated in China. The virus outbreak was in China, but maybe it started elsewhere or definitely started elsewhere. There were many outbreaks in November, none of which is true. Mm. But there's this real concerted effort to push blame away from China. And I think that's both for global propaganda purposes, but most pertinently for domestic, because if there's a second wave of infection in China, they're really going to need somebody to blame. And they're already switching toward blaming foreigners, towards saying we're going to be reinfected from the outside. Interesting. I mean, Russian disinformation campaigns, the phrase that everybody always uses is, is muddy the waters, is they don't try and construct one clear alternative version of reality, but rather they just kind of dump 10 or 20 lazy theories into the information ecosystem and just kind of see what takes root. I mean, it, how does that work in China? It's much more mixed in China. China doesn't have the kind of flexibility that Russian media outlets do, where you can kind of experiment with like mm. the far right, the far left. You can go to all kinds of things. Normally, there's much more pressure to stick to an agreed narrative, and that means that they can't kind of just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Mm. So what's much more common in China, I think, is for these kind of theories to be used as a sort of political signaling. In a lot of cases, it's saying you have to pretend to believe this. It's not even necessarily that they're trying to convince people, though I think this is convincing a lot of people. The Chinese public, big elements of the Chinese public are, are very nationalistic, of course. But it's saying you must pretend to believe this in order to show your allegiance to the party. And one of the things I think that we've been seeing, too, is a little bit more willingness to experiment on Twitter and other English language, or mostly English language, social media outlets than in Chinese language media itself. That's interesting. So, I mean, because what you said first, that sounds to me more like kind of classical propaganda, the same approach that the Soviet Union would have taken, kind of, you know, writing the hymn sheet, which all the officials had to sing from. But they're now dabbling in these... these they're new... dabbling in the more kind of post-Soviet models of Russia. But that's mostly being pushed to the outside world at the moment. The inside line is still much narrower. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I think what we'll we'll see is more of this kind of um, dual messaging. Um, 
there's also sort of signs of a possible like internal war within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the state media apparatus itself, in that you have some people, like uh, Global Times editor Hu Shijin, posting, this is a time to cooperate and work with the Americans and we shouldn't listen to people who sort of push aggression. Um, at the same time as his own paper is sometimes running these theories. So it's hard to tell if this is a fight internally or mm -hmm. if this is a kind of rope-a-dope strategy with you know some plausible deniability while at the same time pushing this sort of craziness out there. Hmm. Interesting. Well, to help make sense of all of this, earlier I spoke over Skype with Graham Brookie, the director and managing editor of the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab. So Graham, in times like this, when the news is just moving so fast, and a lot of people are frankly very afraid, are we more susceptible to either misinformation or intentional disinformation? Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely true. Um, in times of crisis, we're uh, looking for information, and uh, if we find information from sources that we trust that isn't necessarily fact-based or the latest information, uh, then we typically use it. And so, what mm. we're dealing with right now is what the World Health Organization uh, calls an infodemic that is happening in parallel to. Uh, the pandemic threat of COVID-19. Mm. And how they define an infodemic, uh, which they did on as far back as February 2nd, is an overabundance of information, some accurate and some not, that makes it harder for people to find trustworthy sources of reliable guidance when they need it. And I would add, when they need it most. Mm -hmm. Now, the World Health Organization has advised to stop calling it, you know, the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus or making reference to the origins of the coronavirus in its name. But members of the Trump administration, Republican politicians have continued to call it, you know, the Wuhan virus, the Chinese virus. What impact does that have on the information sphere in discussing the crisis and the pandemic? Uh, it makes it more loaded, right? It, it makes... Uh the information uh, that we are consuming about coronavirus, uh, less focused on the medical information and the expert information that leads to uh, better decision-making on a, on a personal level, uh, and more kind of fear-mongering about the virus itself. And so it's incredibly important to note that the World Health Organization designated uh, this particular coronavirus, this novel coronavirus, as COVID-19. And the reason why they called it COVID-19 is exactly to your point, to limit the amount of stigmatization about the virus. And what these comments from uh, members of Congress, uh, certain leaders in the Trump administration, a number of political influencers, and the President of the United States himself, uh, calling it terms like Wuhan virus or Chinese virus, uh, is it does exactly the opposite. It stigmatizes uh, COVID-19 and how we talk about it. Mm -hmm. I want to turn and look at the international dimension here. I mean, we've talked a lot about the United States, but what are you seeing in other countries? What kind of disinformation are you seeing about the coronavirus? And have you seen it be used as a line of attack, um, either against the United States or as a political tool? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, immediately uh, after a number of cases were reported, some of kind of the state media or kind of known disinformation actors from Russia uh, started pushing narratives that 
uh, COVID-19 was actually created uh, in Luger Labs in the country of Georgia as a United States bioweapon. Uh, I want to be very, very, very clear that there is no evidence uh, that that is the case. That is an outright falsehood. Uh, we've also seen narratives pushed by uh, the Venezuelan regime leader, uh, Nicolas Maduro, that the coronavirus is a U.S. bioweapon that uh, is targeting China. That, again, is false. There is no evidence for that. That is uh, disinformation. Uh, or uh, we're starting to see from the from uh, some of the leaders from China uh, narratives again, kind of in that same vein, that coronavirus was actually a U.S. bioweapon. Now, conversely, in the United States, uh, we're seeing some of those narratives spread by our own leaders that that coronavirus was in fact a, a Chinese bioweapon targeting the world, uh, targeting Europe, targeting the United States. Again, there is no evidence for that. That is an outright falsehood. Uh, and frankly, it muddies the water across this information environment where we're trying to uh, better understand the global situation and make sure that the medical interventions or non-medical interventions to coronavirus in hyper-local information environments are objective, fact-based, and, and relying on science rather than uh, kind of our basis notions or our geopolitical competition. And I suppose I don't. You may not want to answer this, but just out of curiosity, I mean, what's the craziest piece of misinformation or false information you've heard about the coronavirus so far? Oh my gosh! Like this space is flooded right now, and so there's a few different kind of categories of disinformation or misinformation that that uh, we need to be extremely aware of. And one is that geopolitical or ideological uh, set of disinformation. Uh, another is economic disinformation, hmm. and that's hmm. stuff like trying to uh, drive up prices on certain goods or trying to scare you into buying things right now, not based in fact. Um, and then there's another category that I would add that I typically would not add, but that's uh, health disinformation. Uh, crazy conspiracies that have no uh, basis in science, like Gargling salt water will cure you of coronavirus. That is false. Don't do that. Um, but the, that kind of medical disinformation or medical yeah. advice disinformation, and that's really, really harmful right now. Yeah. I've been getting emails from a company trying to pitch me on a story about silver having some kind of effect on viruses. And they were very careful to note that it doesn't, there's no scientific evidence that it uh, combats the coronavirus, but they're still taking this opportunity to promote their product, which is remarkable. Save for the fact that it's a metal, which means that it's more likely that the virus will live on it for longer, right? Like yeah. That, yeah. It's, it's bad. That's terrible. Yeah. Well, that was all of my questions. Is there anything else that you'd like to add that you think is particularly relevant? I guess the, the last thing that I would say is that um, the first and the best practice uh, while we're responding to an infodemic for any of us that are communicating in public mm -hmm. uh, is to point to the latest science-based and publicly accountable information. And so in the United States, that means please, please, please visit coronavirus.gov, which is a website that is maintained with the latest information by the Centers for Disease Control, and that is the primary source that people should be going to. Uh, and then for hyper-local information, that's uh, county, state-level officials, the public health department, 
they should be the most reliable sources of information. That was Graham Brookie, the director and managing editor of the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab, speaking over Skype. Amy, what's your own personal favourite conspiracy theory of the moment? <laughs> I mean, it's hard to choose my just one favourite conspiracy theory, but I think oh, the most... Oh, there's so many. I know. I think the most outlandish claim I've seen on Russian state TV is a host tried to make the link between the name, so Corona being the Latin word for crown, and the fact that Trump used to run uh, beauty pageants where, of course, crowns are given out as some kind of like veiled wink and nod that this was, in fact, a U.S. creation. Makes sense. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. Actually, they have. There has been some stories in, in the Russian state press about whether it were they were they were divided about whether or not it was a George Soros-backed virus or Bill Gates somehow got roped into it as well. Oh yeah, I saw the Bill Gates stuff where it was because I think he he ran a simulation once on a pandemic, and they were yeah. like this was just him planning, planning and publishing the details. And I always like that conspiracy theories where they're like, you know, look at this paper that shows clearly what they were doing. And I'm like, you know, conspiracies don't generally write up the results and post them online. You know, there's not an international journal of conspiracies. Oh, man. That's it for today's edition of Don't Touch Your Face. I'm Amy McKinnon. And I'm James Palmer. And listeners, we want to hear from you. Tell us how the pandemic is affecting you wherever you are in the world. Send in your questions to don'ttouchyourface at foreignpolicy.com or send your questions as an audio recording using your voice record app on your mobile phone. And don't forget to check out the coronavirus coverage over at foreignpolicy.com where we have some of the world's leading experts breaking down what's happening and what could come next. Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and Dan Haverty and edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember to wash your hands. And don't touch your face. <laughs> <laughs>